welcome back to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Matt Winesett, and my sidekick, Max Frost, is with me again today. Hey, Matt. Hey. Doesn't Hi. feel too good to be identified as a sidekick. <laughs> Rather be a trusty sidekick than sitting on the sidelines outside of this studio right now. <laughs> yeah, we've got a huge line on the <laughs> sidelines now. Big fan base. We are joined today by a recurring guest, one of our favorites, Colin Duick. We're talking to him about his new book, called Age of Iron on Conservative Nationalism, available from the University of Oxford Press. Go buy it now. Colin Duick is a visiting scholar at AEI where he focuses on national security strategy and politics. Colin was a Rhodes Scholar. He has a PhD from Princeton, and he's a professor at George Mason as well. So we had an interesting conversation with Colin. We kind of talked about American foreign policy in a historical context and where Trump's foreign policy fits into that. Uh, We talked about Iran a bit. We talked about... China, definitely. China. Collins got some experience, too, working on Republican presidential campaigns. So despite his pedigree at Princeton and the Rhodes Scholarship and all that, it is not just some egg-headed ivory tower, <laughs> you know, elitist bubble theoretical conversation. This is practical, hard-nosed stuff, as the book Age of Iron would imply. And we really enjoyed the conversation. I cannot wait to read the book. And without further ado, here is Colin. Colin, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. So we're here to talk about your new book, Age of Iron. Can we start by having you tell us what is the Age of Iron? When did it begin? Hmm. Good question. Um, So it's it's based on an ancient Greek myth that suggests that history doesn't always progress upward and forward. It can actually go in cycles downward. Uh, I do think there was a kind of golden age of liberal internationalism I describe in the book in the 1940s. But I think it's a long time since we've had that that age. So one of the main criticisms that people have of Trump today from from the left is to say, you know, you you've wrecked this this golden age of of liberal internationalism that went right up until 2016 and we just need to restore that. And I I'm suggesting that actually it's a lot more complicated than that that there's been some decay in that system and that that's part of the reason for Trump in the first place actually. So when people talk about this rules-based international liberal order, what do they mean when they is that just I mean that seems very abstract. Yeah, it is abstract and that's been part of the problem. I mean it means a lot of different things. There is I think when people use it, when liberal internationalists use it, there's usually a sort of skeleton and then muscles and then flesh, right? So part of it is alliances, trade agreements, uh, forward presence. But then it gets into this um, more abstract element of just a kind of rhetorical repetition of the idea of soft power, liberal rules, norms, as if that in itself is going to help tame, for example, the Chinese Communist Party, which, you know, we've seen over the years it hasn't. So people do tend to mean a lot of different things by it. And I think it's become almost a kind of a mental tick to refer to it and say, that's that's what we want. That's what's under threat. That's what we need to restore. So what would be this golden age that we would that when people say we need to restore the order, are they thinking about maybe the 1990s, like post, post fall of the Berlin Wall or just the whole post-war era? It depends on who you ask. I think a lot of the Obama people think it was Obama. <laughs> um, I think there's general agreement that, you know, FDR and Truman look pretty good in retrospect, but the the debate is over sort of when you start to get the shift. I mean, actually, liberals started to fracture with Vietnam, and already with candidates like George McGovern, you had a, you know, a real challenge to that more muscular Harry Truman type tradition. And then I think ever since then, liberal Democrats have kind of been torn, whether it's Bill Clinton or Barack Obama, they've kind of been torn between, a, I would say, a more realistic foreign policy and one that's that's less realistic. So 
you know, Obama seemed to think that you could nudge forward the arc of history by leading in terms of accommodating other countries and you could transcend differences. And it, that was actually not a terribly realistic model in the first place. I wrote my last book on that uh, a few years ago. So, you know, I, I think there were some real problems with Obama's foreign policy that, that fed into this phenomenon. Yeah, I mean, something that kind of strikes me, I know now ever since Trump's been elected, rules-based liberal order has become, if not a household term, certainly. <laughs> household in AI at least. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, we hear, we hear it so much. Yet at the same time, like, I mean, I studied international relations undergrad. And if there's one thing I took away from it, it's that there is no rules in, you know, there is, there is no order in the international sphere. So what do you, th I mean, what do you think about that? What, was there ever a period where people were playing by the same rules and now all of a sudden it's shifting and now you have China and Russia being these revisionist powers? Or is that all just kind of a figment of our imagination? Well, look, what, under, what undergirds that is power. So American power uh, at the end of World War II was real and there was a willingness to use it and exercise it, deploy it overseas, first against the Nazis and then against the Soviet Union. And there were very practical reasons to do that. And so it made sense and people were willing to make certain sacrifices on behalf of that. So that's, you know, it, the rest of it is sort of um, icing, right? Um, once you get into the post-Cold War era, you begin to get over time more and more of a question as to why are we doing this? What's the reason for it? How are these interventions actually going? Are these free trade agreements in the interests of U.S. workers and, you know, and are other countries converging on this model that we'd like to see? And gradually over time, I think culminating in the Trump phenomenon, there's more and more people at the, for example, at the base of the Republican Party who are just really skeptical that it's working. And I think Trump spoke for them. I'm not celebrating this. I'm not applauding it. But I'm saying that that's the reality. I mean, there is a certain f set of frustrations that are real with trade policy, foreign policy, immigration policy. And without those frustrations, we wouldn't have had Trump in the first place. Yeah. So would you consider Trump more of a system than, than like the leader of this new age of iron conservative nationalist resurgence? He is uh, as much of an effect as a cause, mm -hmm. although he played an important role. He was kind of a, I would say as a politician, unusually effective, surprisingly effective in tapping into a lot of those grievances and then expressing them. I mean, and he actually has had a point of view for over 30 years. I mean, he tends to see U.S. allies as free riders. And he tends to be skeptical of free trade agreements. And he's been saying so, not in the usual think tank way, but in you know radio, radio interviews and whatnot. So that's his point of view. It's a more populist point of view, but it's real. And he, he spoke for that perspective. So then, yeah, the theme that Matt just mentioned, and that's the subtitle of your book, On Conservative Nationalism. You, I think you say in the, in the introduction of your book, that's arguably the most, I want to say most influential foreign policy tradition in the United States, at least in the last hundred years or so? Well, I think there was a mainstream US foreign policy tradition prior to, let's say, Woodrow Wilson, which was conservative American nationalism. In other words, it was the idea that you maintain a free hand, freedom of action. You, you could be engaged overseas economically, diplomatically, or even sometimes militarily, but you would avoid long-term permanent alliances and you'd, you'd maintain a free hand. George Washington laid that down in his farewell address. And for all the changes, that was the mainstream view, both parties throughout you know, the 19th century and well into the 20th. What Wilson did was something different. He said, you know, let's make global, binding, universal, multilateral commitments through the League of Nations, right? That's a, that's a fundamental alternative to that older tradition. And, and Wilson failed in the short term, but in the long term, he actually succeeded in convincing 
a lot of people that that would be the way to go. So FDR and Truman then kind of fused that or melded into a, a new formula that worked pretty well for its day in the 40s. So you have this revival. Um, but, you know, this is something that's a, a product of its time. And the question is now what? what thing, one of the things that made Trump so interesting is he questioned the fundamentals of that whole tradition. I mean, he ran in 2016 against the Wilsonian tradition. We haven't heard a Republican presidential candidate who wins talk that way, you know, in our lifetime. Um, so that's a that's that's about as serious as it looks. I mean, he he was questioning and continues to question America's liberal internationalist legacy going back to Wilson. And so I see it as a revival, actually, of an older tradition, not because Trump is particularly ideological, but because he's tapping into something that's real, which is a revival of that older tradition predating Wilson, you know. So if Wilson is emblematic of this one tradition, who would be most emblematic of this older one? Is this like the John Quincy Adams, we go not abroad in search of monsters? Or is it a, is it just every early American president kind of follow the same, not isolationist, but not committed model? Sure. I mean, it's it's all of them, but it really starts with Washington. Um, you know, in, in, in the farewell address, Washington says we can have commercial relations with other countries. Uh, we can have short-term alliances. I mean, we needed the French to defeat the British in the American Revolution. That was an absolute monarchy, so we weren't terribly fussy about that short-term alliance. Yeah. However, long-term Washington, at least for the time, was recommending avoiding permanent alliances or permanent military diplomatic alliances. So I would actually say it's it goes back to Washington. So if Trump is throwing a wrench in the traditional foreign policy of the United States, how's he doing? <laughs> Yeah, well, that's that's the big question, everybody. I mean, obviously, there are wildly different assessments of this, right? Um, it sort of depends on what your criterion are. The funny thing about Trump is that he and his critics tend to talk past each other. So, for example, for a lot of his supporters, the very fact that he is shaking things up and disrupting is exactly the point. So, he's actually acting on what he said. So, what he, what he promised in 2016 at the broadest level was he said, we're going to renegotiate trade agreements. We're going to push our allies to spend more on their own defense. We're going to wind down the war in Afghanistan. Um, we're going to push the Chinese on economics. And he's doing all those things. So I think for core supporters, for that whatever it is, 40, 45% of the country, that's one of the reasons they stick with them is because he's actually doing it. Now, of course, for the whatever, the other half of the country, people look at it and say, I don't like this one bit, right? I didn't want this. I don't like it. I don't think it's working. So you're going to get radically different points of view, but it's... it. People almost talk past each other because they yeah. can't agree on what would constitute success in the first place. The one thing I would say is he is doing what he said he would do, you know, for better or worse. He's, he actually is cycling back constantly to his 2016 campaign and he's finding personnel that are willing to help him on that, right? And he's getting rid of people that won't. Yeah. I know it's kind of ironic. Sometimes people will say that any affront, it's all an affront to democracy, any attack on this rules-based liberal order. But Trump is doing what he said he would do in the election, and that's what democracies should do. Candidates should do what they say they're going to do, I would think. When people say that the rules-based order is under assault, they usually seem to apply it's by isolationists. But is this conservative nationalism? Is it a more, in some ways, it doesn't seem very isolationist at all. Maybe the rhetorically, it's not as pro-NATO and UN as before, but it it does seem like it's more willing to confront countries like China. Yeah, you're right. And I've never actually, I, I've never really liked the word isolationist anyway. I think there is a, you know, most American historians who study this would say the U.S. was never truly isolated from the rest of the world. I mean, it's always been very engaged in, in different ways. It just hasn't always had this set of alliances that, that you know, that we've had in, 
recent decades. But there is a tradition. I do talk about this in the book. There are different sort of subcultures within the American nationalist tradition. There is a more non-interventionist version. And to this day, somebody like a Rand Paul, right, would say we should really, if anything, go even further in scaling back our military presence overseas. And obviously, there are people even in Washington, there's some in Congress and some in think tanks who take that position. That's not the majority of Republican voters, I don't think. There isn't some grassroots pressure to dismantle NATO. But there is a there is a faction or a group on the right that says, really, if anything, Trump should go further and, and disma- really dismantle our military presence uh, more than he's done. And then, of course, there's there's those on the other side who feel like he's he's been – he's gone too far, right? What's funny about him though is if you look at the whole range of conservative Republican voters, I mean, for all of his oddities, he's sort of in the middle on this. He hasn't actually dismantled U.S. alliances, but he hasn't been as as eager to intervene militarily as some others might be. And so, oddly enough, I think he's about where a lot of the median voters are at, which is, you know, let's push back on China, let's try not to actually get into a war with Iran, right? Let's get our NATO allies to spend more, but let's not walk away from Europe completely. Mm-hmm. But so, I mean, do you think that there is this latent, you know, group of Americans who've been sitting around the country lately thinking, wow, we really need to disentangle from NATO. We really need to get out of these commitments. Or is it more that Trump came along and just decided that will be my platform and people fell into line with it? Yeah. You know, so he said some off the cuff things like NATO's obsolete, which got everybody's attention, certainly got my attention. And I think a lot of foreign policy experts in DC. And it was hard to know what the plan was. I mean, so in other words, what's he going to do about it, right? If you, say, if you say NATO's obsolete, it's a little bit like saying my bathroom's obsolete. Well, are you going to have a home with no bathroom? What are you proposing? Are you going to, do you just want a new bathroom? He never really told us. I, I don't think he was very clear on what comes next. So a lot of his complaints over the last 30 years were, were really just that. They were complaints. In other words, we, he would say, we do too much to prop up our allies. They free ride off us. Uh, what do we get from it? But that's not a plan. That mm-hmm. was never that never was a plan. Then I think he won, maybe even against his own expectations. Now what do you do? Well, the obvious thing is not necessarily disband NATO on day one, but push your allies to spend more and see if they do, right? And keep your options open. And that's what he's done all along. I mean, he, he does alarm people sometimes with his off-the-cuff statements about NATO, but the actual policy has been, if anything, we, we put more troops in Poland, right? I mean, we support NATO, continue to support NATO, and, and the Germans don't spend as much as you'd like, but there has been a little bit of success around the edges in getting some improved defense spending from NATO. Is there any way to gauge, do you think, though, how popular these pol- – or how, like, how desired these policies are by the American people? Because to back to Max's question a little bit, it does seem like it's – almost impossible to know what people actually think because you it can't seem to tell whether they they like the Amer- median American voter has a strong opinion on NATO or if they just have a strong opinion on their politician and yeah. whatever the politician says they're going to kind of contort themselves to think that's a good idea. So, so, so I mean this whole and this kind of just do a deeper question this whole idea of populism or conservative nationalism or what have you are these authentically popular things or are the politicians popular and then Really, the politicians have way more leeway to kind of guide the populace than vice versa. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, so just on your your first point, um, so look, I mean, particularly in an age of negative polarization, you're going to tend to get partisans supporting a president of the same party and actually opposing a president of the other party. Mm -hmm. So right now, if Trump says almost anything, you're going to tend to get 
opposition from Democrats and support from Republicans in terms of voters. That's just where we're at right now in this country. And so for most people, you know, technical, distant foreign policy questions are not of the highest interest. So what exactly should our policy be toward Egypt? I mean, the, you know, your average American is going to either defer to the president if they support the president, just as you say, or they're going to oppose the president if they don't like him. Mm -hmm. So you're right. Having said that, he did tap into, I think, a real frustration. I mean, I was working on other campaigns. I can tell you that you know, it was, I was struck of the, the more conventional Republican candidates did not address those frustrations very well. You know, the, the kind of retroactive frustration with the war in Iraq, war in Afghanistan, free trade agreements, China, as you say, immigration patterns. I mean, that was real. So he, it's not a coincidence that he won the nomination. There was, there was at least one side of the party, let's say half the party, that felt that way and that the other candidates just weren't speaking to as effectively. So do you think, I mean, so much of what you just described can be traced probably to events of the early 2000s. Obviously, there's the Iraq War, Afghanistan, 9-11. China entering the WTO. China entering mm -hmm. the WTO and then the recession. So do you think this is lingering? You know, we're dealing with a slight lag where soon this is going to go away and it's back to business as usual. Or do you think something has fundamentally changed in the United States? Yeah, that's that's great. So um, it's funny because I sometimes get questions from uh, European, especially European embassies want to, want to ask you know, is this now the trend? I mean, we're going to get a President Trump, maybe a President Warren, and then who knows after that, you know, sort of this long-term downscaling militarily overseas. And that they worry about that, of course. They'd like to have continued American support no matter who's president. I think the truth is that, that nobody can really promise long-term one way or the other. You're going to have some people, non-interventionists will say the long-term trend is clearly that the U.S. is going to downscale and downsize and that's how it should be and we feel pretty good about that, right? And Trump has cracked open the door even if we don't like everything about him. That's that's the one extreme. The other is to say obviously the US will bounce back in the way in the in, with a kind of muscular idealism like it always does, right? And it could be under one president or another, but it'll be back, right? Trump or right now we're sort of taking a coffee break from a lot of international frustrations, but we'll be back. I'm not sure how people can say for certain that will go down one of those paths or another. I think it's a jump ball. I think it could, I mean, I honestly believe it could go either way. And there's a basis for that factionally or politically in America, depending on events and depending on leadership. I mean, if we suddenly have a crisis with North Korea and it's a truly warlike crisis and things, things accelerate, I mean, that could, that could finally pose a challenge to the administration of the type it hasn't had yet. And that would that might change what Trump's foreign policy looks like in a really serious way. Um, we don't know for a fact what what the future holds in terms of events, but I think that there are some there are some profound forces, both domestic and international, that have pushed U.S. policy in this direction under Trump. And I would be surprised if the next president, even if it's a progressive Democrat, completely dismantles all those changes. I mean, there are going to be some things that stay, like the more hardline economic policy on China. Yeah, the Democrats, Schumer especially, seem to be in agreement that China is a long-term threat and needs to be dealt with. But what do you think will determine the, the path of the future? Do you think it will be these kind of underneath forces or just the strength of a personality? Because I see on Twitter all the time that people point at polling now in the Democratic Party. This gets back to your point about negative polarization. Democrats have never supported free trade at higher levels than they do now. And that's probably mostly because Trump is so seemingly anti-free trade. 
But I imagine if an Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders wins, the Democrats will do a quick heel turn on free trade again. So do you think think a lot of this just depends on who is in the White House and that shapes both opinions and the course of events? So, okay, at the top level, leadership matters a great deal. I mean, Trump's showing us that. We saw that with Obama. We saw it with Bush. I mean, it really matters who's president and then whether people rally around that person or, or don't like them or like them. So I do think personality and leadership matters. They have the presidents especially have the ability to shift and channel these these forces and make make choices for one action as opposed to another. More fundamentally though, I mean you are tracking trends that, and this is not coincidental. I mean the rise of China is a really big structural trend that outlasts any particular personality. Mm-hmm. So that's an example where eventually you're going to bump up against that trend and that's what we've seen, right? So whether it's Trump or Warren or whoever, you know, this is not going away. This is just a big fact out there in the world. Another example, if the Republican Party is shifting long-term toward more of a, a working-class base, a more blue-collar base, you know, that's gonna, that could shift your policy on trade in a serious way over a longer period of time mm-hmm. um, because it's traditionally been college-educated, mi- middle-class, white-collar Republicans who support free trade for decades. If you're more of a blue-collar party, you know, your, your trade policy may look a, a little bit different even after Trump. So that, that remains to be seen. That's an example of a kind of structural shift underneath the surface that isn't just about personality. So this is more of an opinion question. I mean, to what extent have we dug ourselves into a hole now? When, and when you look around and you see issues, whether it's China, uh, you know, Iran, obviously, all these big geopolitical issues, Russia, that because of this conservative nationalism or because of this populism, I mean, whichever way you want to look at it, that it's kind of backfired and now it is that much harder for us to pursue our own interests as a country. Which cases are you thinking exactly? I guess Iran is the one that really comes to mind mm-hmm. because of, you know, obviously tensions with our allies and then pulling out the Iran agreement and what have you. Well, in the case of Iran, I, I, I'm, I think it's premature to say that Trump's policy has, has failed. I, I know you didn't say that, but I think it's, it's aggressive. It's, it's, it's actually, I think, fundamentally what was required after Obama. I mean, the, the 2015 agreement didn't make a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. It was very generous to Iran and it provided them with the money to finance their own aggression in the region. So I, I actually am fine with the fact that the US pulled out of it and I'm fine with the sanctions on Iran too. Now, the Iranians have decided to do something interesting and creative, which is to push back. So here we are. Now, it's not, I mean, and this is something, it's like if you're playing chess, you, you, don't, you understand that the other side gets a move. That's fine. That's part of strategy. That's part of international relations. So in the end, Trump has tried to avoid outright war with Iran, which you know, is, is actually not unintelligent. I mean, that's not a bad choice. At the same time, we have to figure out exactly how to deter Iran, maintain and restore deterrence, protect our allies, push back against Iran. I don't think you were about to renegotiate some brilliant new deal with Iran and, and that's fine. It's, we don't need a deal just for the sake of a deal. But there, there did need to be some pushback on Iran and actually they're doing it. And just lately now, the Europeans even seem to be on board recognizing in some ways, that that these events have been Iran's fault. So we'll we'll just have to see how it plays out. And I I don't think it's uh, I think it's too early to say that Trump's Iran policies failed. I think it's it's a pressure campaign that is operating. Yeah, and at the very least, despite all the tensions, I think as you just alluded to, England, France, and Germany just came out and said that they are blaming Iran for the attack yeah. on Saudi Arabia. Right? Exactly. I think the bigger my bigger concern would be if there is a realignment in trade policy. Where does that leave Europe? Ostensibly, we'll have much tougher trade policy on China, but 
this seems to be the point of tension with our allies now too, is that we're kind of targeting European allies with yep. these trade punitive measures. Do you think that will be something that the Republican Party and its blue collar base will want to pursue in the future? Or can we just focus all our trade ire on China? Yeah, well, exactly. I, I think it, look, I think it would be a mistake to go down the path of just ramping up protectionism on European allies. Actually, the and I think Trump would have the ability politically to do this if he decides, which is resolve your trade differences with Europe and then focus on China, work with allies against China. There, he could certainly do this and his supporters would follow him in that. It's not, of the t it's not of the top interest. He could declare victory and go home when it comes to the trade dispute with the EU. And really the course that makes the most sense for, is to, to do exactly that, to come to some kind of an agreement with the EU on trade and then win their support because actually Chinese economic influence in Europe is a problem. I mean, in every way, it's it's a strategic problem. And so we should be working with our European allies against China. I, ho I hope that that's one of the steps that the administration takes in the coming years. Yeah, it seems like a no-brainer to me. But economically, is there a concern though that now or in the short to medium to long term that Germany though, that Germany's economy could be undercutting some certain US industries? That seems to be a hang up with Trump a little bit. And even other even other EU nations seem to be perpetually unhappy with Germany. Right, right. The, Ger <laughs> the Germans may of any European allies. That's they they make the U.S. right now the most unhappy, and and the feeling is mutual. I'm sure. And it isn't just the trade issue. It's it's defense spending. I mean, they've made it clear that they're just not going to increase defense by much. There's a kind of culture gap. I mean, Germans just for obvious historical reasons don't want to think about military pushback or geopolitics. It's just not even in their mental toolkit. Uh, so thankfully, yeah, we've, <laughs> and we've talked about this before. So, you know, Germany, there is just a, I, I do, one thing I would worry about with Germany is that there's a long-term trend where Germany starts to drift east, mm -hmm. where Germany, the Germans start to say, you know, we don't really have much use for the United States anymore. Formally, we want to be part of NATO, but we need to maintain good economic relations with Russia and China, good diplomatic relations. We have our own way of doing things. We, we avoid military solutions. We prefer multilateralism. We prefer liberal rules-based order to come back to that. Yeah. And you could imagine a Germany that is a, an economic powerhouse in the middle of Europe that drifts further and further away from the U.S. I, I harp on this point all the time. This, this is an argument Matt's heard me make probably Max is a dozen not the times. Biggest fan of the Germans, it seems like. I, <laughs> well, we're almost out of time, but before we end, I think we would be remiss not to mention Russia a little bit on a conversation about conservative nationalism. Mm -hmm. It seems like across Europe, Trump in America, Orban in Hungary, Le Pen. They all seem very pro-Russia, or at least anti-anti-Russia. Is this, if politics do take a more conservative and nationalist turn, is Russia going to be have to be brought back into the fold at some point, or are they going to remain a enemy or at least adversary of the U.S. for a while to come? I think it varies from case to case. So, for example, the polls. You know, if you think about the the sort of uh, more conservative, populist, nationalist. Uh, Forces in Poland, they they don't have much use for Russia. Mm. In Britain, you think somebody like Boris Johnson is kind of in this conservative nationalist tradition. I think he'd be pretty hard line on Russia. So it varies. I mean, even Orban, although you know a sketchy character in a number of ways, I think seems to be more equidistant between uh, Russia and and NATO. So I think you have to look at case by case. Um, Russia clearly wants, for its own reasons, to break up. NATO and the Western Alliance, and we have to make sure that it doesn't. That's up to us. But there's no reason that you, there's no reason why democratically elected conservatives of a populist or nationalist bent in the West can't be hardline on Russia. And as a matter of fact, a number are. Colin, thank you for coming back on. Thank you. 
As always, thank you to Colin. Thank you all for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, please, you know, you're getting it for free. We ask for no payment in return, although our Venmo is available upon request. All we ask in return is that you like us, rate us, leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to your podcast. Now, we got a an interesting review recently. This is from Mom of Littles. And this mom says, or it could be Momo Flittles, but I think- I read, it as, I read it as Momo Flittles. Yeah, well, this is why she's calling us an idiot, because it's definitely Mom of Littles. Uh, <laughs> let's, get to their, let's hear what she said. She, she says- She gave us five stars. Well, I, I was going to end with that. Uh, yeah. I mean, what I take away from this is it's a five-star review. You might take away something different. She says, my dear banter boys, sometimes I listen to your conversations and I cringe at the generations to come. Are they all morons, I wonder? I also begin to wonder how the geniuses at AEI ended up with two of you. How did the home of Charles Murray and Arthur Brooks end up with a couple of dweebs who don't know the first thing about anything? (laughs) All caps. But then, every now and then, you will each allude to your actual areas of knowledge and you speak like actual think tank employees. It gives me slivers of hope that you aren't complete dimwits and that the future of AEI won't be a bundle of like, you know, whatevers. Whatever, you know. know. (laughs) Further, like... Fair point. Fair, fair. For the point, though, I don't think we say like or you know or whatever that often. And secondly, five-star review. And thirdly, I take it as high praise, you know. Dimwit is my nickname. That's what, <laughs> my, that's what I generally go by here at AI. Sergeant Dimwit. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't, we, uh, I don't have a very substantive response to that. Yeah, you know, on the one hand, we appreciate the uh, Look, pos- I, positive, critical... What's any, it called? Any constructive criticism? Constructive criticism. Well, you're proving your point that we're doing with now. <laughs> no. no I, think, I think this is good. Look, <laughs> we, may, we may come off as dweebs or dimwits occasionally. Usually, though, this is just the service. It's the character we play. We never know precisely who is listening, and this podcast is open to all. We want to make topics as readily accessible to everyone as we can. And sometimes, you're right, I don't know the intricacies of all the monetary policy. We may be dimwits, but as you said, AEI, the halls of AEI are full of geniuses. And we get to interview them every week, and we do it all. Because we like to do it, we learn a lot from it, and we hope you do too. So if the price of that is being a moron, it's a price worth paying. <laughs> touching, right? <laughs> very, very touching. Well, I don't have too much to add. We'll be back next week with a great guest, Greta Thur- what's her last name? Thurnberg? Thurnberg, I want to say. Yeah. Greta is coming she, on the show. She's sailing down as we speak. She just she got done with her speech at the UN. She's on the way down. Going to sail up the Potomac. No, I would be I would be thrilled if we get Greta on the show. Greta, standing invitation, just like Andrew Yang and all the rest of them. Yep. All the rest of the uh, Dems. We'd love to get anyone on here who could disagree with a bit. I'd say Mama Flittles should come on the show. <laughs> you have a stand, standing... Mama Flittles. Mama Flittles has a standing invitation to come on the show. All right. And we will talk about a topic of your choice. And not sound like dweebs when doing it. Yeah. And we'll see how smart you really sound. You disagree with Greta, though? Uh, what, do you not care about the planet? I... I've got mixed feelings. I don't have animosity towards Greta. I don't feel like uh, tweeting out mocking her as her own president did. Yeah, that was pretty bad. And I just, you know, she's a 16, 16 year old girl who cares a lot about something. She sailed across the ocean. That's more than I've ever done. All the power to her. I, I mean, she used more emissions than you did, though. Huh? I bet she used more carbon emissions. To... I don't drive. That's true. I only walk. Yeah. Walk exclusively. Mm. Very green. Yeah. I, what I didn't like about the speech is the constant use of how dare you in it. It just felt very, I don't feel like that's- Why really, do you, why does it bother you so much? Because that's not the way, because I do care about, you know, the planet. Oh, crap, I just said, you know. 
<laughs> like, whatever. Because I do care about the planet, as I think everybody does. And I think there's ways to reach across the aisle, so to speak, to, pe- to get people. I know people want to just write off the whole right wing of the country because as climate change deniers, but that's not what everybody is. And the fact is, you're going to need people that disagree with you about other topics to come to your side to protect the environment. Look, Greta, Greta is and not... And saying how dare you is not the way to do it. Greta is not a democratic politician. She is a 16-year-old Swedish girl who's very passionate about the environment and sad that no action is being taken to fix its degradation. I'm also sad. If she wants to sail across the ocean, come to the UN and yell at the people there saying, you guys need to do something to fix this, I don't feel attacked. I don't feel attacked, but I just don't think this makes any positive action more likely. It definitely creates awareness about it. We've talked more about the environment in the last three days than we probably have in the last three years. Uh, maybe you and I, I talk about it a lot. It's a, <laughs> a subject of deep concern to me. And when it comes to reaching across, the, when it comes to reaching across the aisle, I mean, there's no bipart, no bipartisan work being done, being done on this. I mean, I don't agree. This is there. There's a House caucus now. I think Republicans. In, in, interested in climate change. I can't There's a the caucus for literally everything. There is that group of Republican elder statesmen who want to, who have proposed that carbon dividend plan. Yeah. So, I mean, there are people on the But right it's not getting now. serious play. Not right now. Why? It didn't get serious play when the Republicans had the Senate, the House, and the executive. Yeah, well, we had tax reform to pass. I shouldn't say we there. I'm not. Yeah, I don't know. I, th- I I think that it's not really an issue. I think to say, you know, there's a more civilized way for this 16-year-old activist to reach out to the Republicans in the United <laughs> States. I just don't buy that. She's trying to get at, she's trying to get attention on it and I think that's all good for. Her. I'm not going to her for climate expertise, you know. I can read other places for that, watch other people speak. But her point is I just all all, you know, mm-hmm. I respect it. Do you think she made positive legislation on the climate more or less likely with that speech? More. I think I noticed just, the long pause there. I don't know, because I'm because I'm actually thinking about it. You know, I think most most speeches don't like when's the last time someone's like delivered a speech? Ever heard and of and the Gettysburg all, address? Yeah. Like, exactly. Got I a mean, great grant the for the you know the what are, what are we, speech speeches are motivating things. They move people to action. Speeches are incredibly powerful. I'm just saying the idea of it, the idea of it is to have so many people talking about this and actually thinking about an issue that really isn't getting a ton of, I don't want to say attention, it does get a lot of attention, but it's not getting much policy play. Yeah. I, just, I, think, a, I think a better speech would have, I mean, if she had a better speech that didn't have these kind of overwrought, like, you've ruined my life, how dare you all tones. I, yeah, I it's think, not, the most, not the most persuasive way. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, that, I think if it was a better speech, pre- I mean, maybe this might be naive to say that the current president would have taken it to heart, but it would not have caused such mocking from the entire right side of the political spectrum. Well, Greta, if you're listening, not only are you invited on banter, if you're looking for a new speech writer, Matt Winesett is the guy to do it. He will write some fantastic speeches that will lead to groundbreaking change on the climate. So on that, on, on that note, uh, if Matt is still here next week, it means that Greta has not hired him. <laughs> if he is gone, we wish him all the best. I'm sure there's a pretty stringent interview process. Like, <laughs> I can't just walk in there in a week. But if I am hired, Greta, be more productive than Al Gore ever was. You know where to find him, 1789 Massachusetts Ave. All right. Thank you all for listening and have a great week. Did you get a haircut? Yeah. When? um, Sunday. Interesting. You saw me yesterday. I didn't notice. Oh, well, some friend.